Hi, I'm Reverend Carol Saunders, host of The Spiritual Forum. I'm here with a lot of interesting people who are consciously walking the spiritual path, experiencing and expressing the divine in unique ways and through unique lenses. Everyone here has wisdom to share and an interesting story to tell, all to inspire you on your spiritual path. Welcome to The Forum. Welcome, everyone, to The Spiritual Forum. I'm so glad you're here. I have a terrific guest today. I can't wait to introduce him. But first, I just want to give a shout out to some donors. This is a 100% donation-based podcast, so it really depend on my donors, and I so appreciate that. So I'm shouting out to Laura and Robin today. I don't know either of these ladies. Robin, bless her heart, she is a monthly donor, and she just must really appreciate the work that's being done here, and I'm so grateful to her. Laura wrote me a wonderful email about how the podcast blesses her life, and it's so nice for me to get feedback. So feedback, positive or negative, very happy to hear it. Love to hear what works for you and what doesn't work for you and what topics you might want to have on this podcast. A quick reminder to subscribe and to like and do all those things for podcasts. I'm on YouTube now and I would appreciate some subscribers there and um, kind of working my way, <laughs> kind of working my way on the YouTube. I've been on audio for a few years and have a much, much bigger audience there. Uh, also the whole planet spirituality retreat that I am hosting in October, October 19th through 22nd at Unity Village. Please go to the spiritualform.org slash retreat to learn more about that fantastic event. Okay, that's my run-up. Let me introduce Jeff Thompson. He's a best-selling author of nearly 50 books, successful playwright, British Academy and Film of Television Arts award-winning screenwriter, and one of the world's highest-ranked martial arts teachers. Some of his work in the self-help genre has been translated into dozens of languages, including Russian, Chinese, Japanese, German, and Spanish. His most recent feature film, Retaliation, starring Orlando Bloom, received great acclaim in the U.S. It is a muscular biopic about the metaphysical power of forgiveness. Jeff is with us today from Stratford-upon-Avon. Did I pronounce that right? You did. And you're in the U.K. Um, so glad to have you. We'll be talking about his remarkable new book, 99 Reasons to Forgive and Revenge Ain't One. This will be a two-part series, and that's because there's so much important stuff in his book. I was going through his book, I'm like, wow, this is packed with spiritual teachings. And we couldn't even do this in two podcasts if we want to, but we're going to cover a few things in two podcasts. Part one, we're going to talk about what forgiveness is and what it isn't, and we're going to get into a few of the key reasons to forgive. And in part two, we're going to delve into the opposition that we experience when we try to forgive, and also the principle of quantum entanglement, which is how we literally get entangled with the person who we believe wronged us, and also how we can use the same principle of entanglement to thrive in our lives. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me, and I really appreciate it. Well, like I said, your book was, it was, you know, I knew it was going to be great. I've wanted to have people to come in to talk about forgiveness, particularly their own forgiveness stories, but I didn't expect it to just be so packed with spiritual truth, spiritual truth, spiritual truth after spiritual truth. So really, really appreciate your book. And before we really talk about what forgiveness is and the stuff in your book, can you kind of tell us whatever you want to tell us about your personal story and how you the spiritual steps that kind of got to where you are today. Yeah, I, I guess I ventured into forgiveness because I didn't understand it. I'd experienced it. I was abused as a kid. I was, a, I was groomed and gaslighted and sexually abused by a, by a beloved teacher and it left me conflicted, left me cognitively dissonant at the age of 11, left me confused and divided, and it left me, essentially, it left me with the parasite of, paranoia and mistrust that I could have probably exorcised that very quickly if I'd have spoken to somebody at the time but I was too afraid to do that part of the grooming and the gaslighting is to uh, instill a subtle belief that it's your fault and that there's deep shame there and uh, if there's uh, if there's smoke that you know there must be a fire so it's got to be your fault that's an intrinsic fear that's implanted in you so you you know you didn't share it you didn't bring it to the light. That's what it needs. It needs to be brought to the light before it starts to, um, you know, set up home in your body. 
I didn't do that. I was too afraid to do it. Um, and then when I eventually did confess it to somebody a little time later, it was like I dropped a bomb in their kitchen, an emotional bomb. And they just, I blessed them. They just did not know how to cope with this. They didn't know how to understand it. You know, my family were, were working class, ordinary people, and we were very afraid of middle class professionals because these were your employers. These were your teachers. These were your, um, you know, the police. This was, this was the judiciary. This was the bosses at work. They literally held your life in, in their hands and you was afraid of them. So you didn't question middle class authority and they, people just don't know how to deal with this kind of emotion. So, uh, and I was terrified of my parents or anybody else talking to anyone about it. I'd left it a kind of a bit late really, but, and I'm trying to encourage people to talk about it sooner. But anyway, it, it stayed in me and it remained in me and it left me compromised and it left me divided. So something that put me out by that much, by a small amount when I was a child, put me out by a country mile by the time I was an adult. So I was uh, self-abusing. I was uh, depressive. I was paranoid. I was sexually self-abusing. People don't like to talk about this, but I think it's important to talk about it um, because, uh, you know, we're as, we're as sick as our secrets. If we don't bring it to light, it just continues to grow. The main thing it does, Carol, this is what I realized, was that it, this parasite steals your autonomy. It takes the kingdom by violence, as they say takes over your autonomy, takes over your causal body or your causal will. This is the working arm of the soul. It's the closest, it's the closest um, subtle body to the soul itself. So it basically takes over your ability to, to create positive causation in the world. So all of this beautiful divine light that was coming through me was hitting the filter of darkness and, and projecting out into the world in a negative way. So instead of putting out positive spirit, literally putting positive spirit in me and through me. I was putting out negative spirit because I was afraid. I was abu self-abusing, sexually self-abusing, but didn't even really consciously know I was doing it. So I would have these, I would be overtaken by lusts. And this is quite common in sexual abuse. In, in sexual abuse. Then I would sexually self-abuse. And then afterwards, I would feel absolute deep, deep shame. And I would be assailed by all kinds of dark voices telling me what a deviant I was and if people knew how filthy I was and how dirty I was. So it's like this semi-autonomous thought form, what Eckhart Tolle would call a semi-autonomous thought form, or a parasitical um, perception was feeding off the lust, feeding off the self-harm, and then later feeding off um, these post-assault um, attacks. So I was constantly hiding something. My life was constantly on hold. So my autonomy wasn't my own. I didn't have my own autonomy. Every decision I made from the age of 11 had to go through the filter of fear. Every decision. I was, um, I would be, I'd be say 12 or 13 in a field with a girl and we'd be kissing and her face would morph, not metaphorically, but literally would morph into the face of a man with, with, um, with half beard, you know, like um, unshaved, and I would recoil in horror. I was afraid to be alone in the bath, in the shower. I was, I, these are all things I didn't really understand until much later. So it triggered lots of depressions in me because obviously I was divided. The word uh, demon comes from the word divide. When we're divided against ourselves, we can be said to have a demon in us. So I was divided, but I didn't know I was divided. Um, I've got a parasite working through me, growing fatter on my behavior, and um, I didn't know it was there, so I can't get rid of something I don't know is there. I just thought it was me. I just thought I was, I believed I was not a good person. But there was a deep kindness in me. My, my story was interrupted very early, but my mom always used to say I was a kind kid. I was a nice kid. I was generous, and I felt like I'd got this path, and I was going to do great things and it was interrupted and probably interrupted deliberately anyway i um it took over my autonomy i was aware it took over my autonomy it triggered lots of depressions debilitating depressions um i still managed to get married i had kids so to most people i just seemed like an ordinary person but in the background this secret life was going on 
um, and I was tormented. I had one particularly bad depression when this depression turned up like a three-dimensional monster, kicked down my door and said, I'm back and I'm going to stay as long as I want and I'm going to ruin your life and I'm going to make you afraid to leave the house and you're going to follow your wife around the house like a puppy because you're going to be so afraid. And this one time, I, it was grace. I, I can only tell you this in a trip, but it was, it was a divine grace where I found a righteous anger where I just said, I'm not living like this anymore. I refuse to live like this anymore. I've got a wife, I've got children, I've got a life to live. I refuse to live like this anymore. And the moment I said that, the moment I turned into it and embraced it, instead of running away, I turned into it. And instead of recoiling in fear, I stood up to it. And instead of cowering, I, I um, absorbed it. I literally went face to face with it. And this grace fell into my mind like a coin falling through water. And it said, draw a pyramid. This all came in one instant, like a concept nucleus. Draw a pyramid, and on every step of the pyramid, write down the things that you're afraid of, and then confront them one by one. And that was the beginning of me. This was, a, this was, a, this was the act of me converting every darkness in me, every fear in me, into light. Uh, you know. So I started to write down. I, the moment I wrote down this pyramid, I felt hope. I felt light. And my curiosity. Um, literally, like an antioxidant, neutralized the free radical of fear that was in me, neutralized it. And I just suddenly started to face everything that I was afraid of. I just thought, that's what I'm going to do. At the top of the pyramid, I, I wrote down that I was afraid of violent confrontation. So um, in this intermediary time, I gave up my job. I got a better job. I started to assert myself. I started to win my autonomy back. I started to expand in consciousness because, of course, all these fears that I was converting, they were contracting. And as they contracted, my conscious awareness expanded and suddenly everything felt possible. So I took a job as a nightclub bouncer in order to overcome my fear of violence. And that was um, a very heady time, um, but it was probably the, the most metaphysical experience of my entire life. People think you know, I was a knuckle dragger. It was, you know, that I was just a bouncer. I was a thug, but it was actually a metaphysical experience where the egregore of the door of the security industry taught me how to guard my mind door and protect it. It looked like I was guarding a nightclub door from villains and thugs, um, but I was actually learning to to um, understand myself, and I was learning to guard my own mind door. So it's a much longer story, but basically I started to win my autonomy back again. I realized in order to win my autonomy completely back, um, I had to remove every aberration that was in me, every sin, um, you know, every bad habit, every unkindness. And that, that's been a 30-year process, which I'm still continuing on. Sometime later, when I, I became this very physical man, a, a, a kind of elite martial artist, a professional bouncer, you know, I could kill in 30 languages. I didn't, I kind of turned into somebody, I, I became, I, what, what did Nietzsche say, be careful when you hunt the dragon that you don't become the dragon. I became a dragon. I became a monster myself. But I was starting to look at the, um, the Budo end of my martial arts. I was starting to look at things like forgiveness. I was starting to look at internal work. I was starting to question the violence that I witnessed. Um, and. Uh, I, I just happened to bump into this, serendipitously bump into this person that abused me when I was 11. I was probably in my 30s by now, and I bumped into him in a cafe um, one Sunday morning. And I was this very, very physical, confident man, but I, I was shaking again. I was like I was 11 again. I was terrified. And walking over to him, felt like I was climbing out of a dugout and going across no man's land with a bayonet in my hand. I was terrified. <clears throat> I wanted to just walk away. I wanted to run away. Nobody would know. Only I would know. Anyway, I knew, I knew that I was in a physical place where I could um, enact revenge if I wanted to. But I innately knew that if I did that, it would give me a moment's satisfaction, but it would feed the parasite that was already in me. I knew that in order to, um, in order to remove this man from my life, to, in, to disentangle him, I needed to forgive him. When I say forgive him, I needed to give him over to a greater force than me, which is God or reciprocity, <clears throat> whatever you want to call it. 
So I walked over to him and I was trembling and I was emotional. And I said, you don't remember me, but when I was 11, you abused me. Um, and I said, and you, you damaged my life. I won't use the exact words I said, but I said, you damaged my life, but you need to know that I forgive you. I forgive you. I did, said it twice. Um, he went to stand up as I was talking and I said to him, sit down. But it wasn't my voice. I, re I recognized when I spoke. It was the voice of spirit. I said, sit down. And he sat down without demur. He just sat. And I said, I forgive you. As I went to walk away, he stood up and his hand was trembling like that. And he put his hand out for me to shake. And I knew what he was saying. He was saying, are you forgiving me? Or are you forgiving me? I was actually giving him over to God. I was saying, I can't deal with this. I don't have the power to forgive you. Only his own contrite remorse can release him from the bond of what he's done. But I can give you over to a force and make you face now. That was when I disentangled from him. I shook his hand. <clears throat> and as I walked away, I felt the relief of someone that's been released from prison. But also, I realized that my forgiveness was um, a quiet conceit. Because all the time I'd held him in my head as a monster and somebody that I needed to avenge. And uh, it, it had blocked me from seeing all the things I'd done wrong. I thought, I don't need to worry about this man's salvation or this man's forgiveness. I need to worry about my own. I've done so many terrible things, so many things that I'm not proud of. But I was projecting, I was so focused on what he'd done to me and, what, and the harm he'd done me and the damage he'd done me and how he needed to repay and how I needed to see justice. I didn't look at the things I'd done wrong. So the moment I saw that, I thought, oh, man, I haven't got the power to forgive this man. Um, because that's a divine attribute. It's not a, it's not a human, it's not a human power. I've got the power to give him over to God, but I have got the power to repent my own sins. When I say repent, I don't mean in the sense of a jealous God who, who needs to see that. I, I mean in the sense of repair, return. <clears throat> so I'm repairing my sin. I'm repairing back to the center, to the singularity. So the divided boy is going to come back to a singular place in God. Um, I'm going to repent and repair back to that place. And that became my work from there on in. I no longer held a grudge for this man. I'd let him go. I'd given him over. I trusted in this force of reciprocity. And I started to ardently work on um, repairing my own mistakes, of which there were many. As I repaired those mistakes and contracted myself, contracted all of that negativity, my consciousness expanded exponentially. I went from being afraid to leave the house to working as a nightclub bouncer. And from working as a nightclub bouncer with, with very little education <clears throat> to becoming a, an award-winning uh, writer who didn't go to work anymore. I didn't go to work anymore, Karen. I gave up my job to write and to teach. I did not go to work. I was running down the road at six in the morning on my daily run thinking, this is my job. That's not a change. That's not just a change of employment. That's a change of perception. And that can only come as a grace when we expand consciousness. So I was starting, I was sanctifying my world, if you like. I was making, I was making my, sanctifying myself in that I was making myself whole again, or making myself holy. I was also sanctifying the world. I, I just couldn't believe the potential in the world. Now, this didn't come despite the fact that I was abused. This came because I was abused. That's what I'm trying to say to people that are listening now. What's happened to you is unfortunate, and you have my deepest sympathy, but it's a gift if you can change the way you look at it. That three-dimensional monster that you're afraid of, if you turn into it and, in, and absorb it and embrace it, it will become a two-dimensional cartoon, and it will dissipate. And, it, and it, within that monster, there is light literal light. When I say light, I'm talking about knowledge and consciousness. And when you let go of the person that you're holding the grudge for, when you disentangle yourself, when you disentangle yourself from them and give them over to the greater force, you will expand and you'll, you will sanctify your world. You will sanctify, you can sanctify the world. We can sanctify a high once. I once sanctified the whole of Oxford Street with one act of compassion. One act of compassion turned this busy, um, fearful street full of stalking tourists into, a, into rivers of happy shoppers. It was beautiful just with one sanctifying act of compassion. 
that's the capacity we have. But in order to access that right, we have to um, exchange. We have to make an exchange. We have to find that isthmus point where we where we go to God and we say, "I've got this sin. I've got this error. I've got this mistake. I've got this bruise. I've got this anger. I've got this um, jealousy, this envy, this fear." Um, uh, and we we ask, we ask Him for mercy. Um, mercy means to it, it, the, the the etymologically mercy means exchange. So we ask Him if I give you this. Will you exchange it? So we give over our darkness and he exchanges it for light. And then, of course, we receive that and we do what we're doing here. We pass it over. Wow. This is an incredible story. And uh, you packed a lot in that. I just want to provide a couple of reflections and then we can talk some more. Because I think that yeah. it's really important that you made this decision to refuse to live like this. Like that's kind of like a turning point. I refuse to live like this. And then you said you turned into your fear. So those are two really clear steps, making a declaration of refusing to live in the pain and the suffering and the horror of it all. And I'm going to turn into the fear. I think it's so interesting when you were in the cafe where your perpetrator was you know, across the room that you innately yeah. knew that you had to release him, otherwise you would feed the parasite in you. I, I think that's so yeah. interesting because I, I kind of think that this divine clarity that you had around that was tied to your declaring that you're not going to live like this anymore and that you're Absolutely, willing to face yeah. all your fears. And so that's where the grace of that intuition came from. Do you agree with that? Mm. I absolutely agree. And there was, even, there was something that I missed that's even more key, if you don't mind, I'll share with sure, you. Sure, sure. When, when I was looking for relief from the depression and from the anxiety, I read everything I could. And all of the authors that promised to give me the answers did not give me the answers. Either they didn't have them or they didn't know how to articulate them. More, more likely, God didn't want me to see them because he wanted me to find it for myself. So when I, I was so frustrated that they weren't offering me these answers that I remember saying to myself, when I find the answers, I am going to tell everybody. Now, I didn't realize it at that time, but I triggered on the secret to the tree of life, the Holy Grail, you know, um, which is um, to receive in order to share, to receive in order to share. So it was, a, it was a genuine selfless act. And I believe that was the key that unlocked it all. And I promised that I would... Um, write about and talk about what I learned. When I found the truth, I'm going to tell everybody. That opened the door and I started to receive um, little wisdom sparks over and over and over, which I've, which I've continued to share. So that was the, f the first thing was when I find the answer, I'm going to share it. I made a vow and I've, I've not broken that vow, although many times I've, I have been afraid to share it because, you know, you have to make yourself vulnerable and, and when you share it, it's a sacrifice. That's how we sanctify things, and that makes you feel vulnerable. And every single time I do that, I have to remind myself that, you know, in order for me to be strong, I need to be weak. I need to let God come in into me. I need to remove my ego and let him come through and just trust that the advocate will do my speaking for me. But it, the key was I, I genuinely want to share this. I never had a thought of money. I never had a thought of followers. I never had a thought of anything other than, there are people out there suffering, and the suffering is urgent and it's immediate. I know they are, and I want, when I find the truth, I, I'm not going to hide it. I'm going to tell everybody, and that's what I've continued to do. The turning into it is really important. I don't try and get rid of fear. I just thought I'm going to confront everything I'm afraid of. Um, so the idea of trying to get rid of it just tends to make it get bigger. So what you do is you just sit with it. I just, I just confronted the fear. Um, and I sat with the feelings, the feelings that I'd run away from, I sat with them and they postured and they shouted and screamed a little bit. But eventually they go, oh, we, we, they've given up the ghost and they just dissipate. And then the light that's in them, um, the, uh, the effulgence that's within these darknesses comes over to me and I expand. So I remove a darkness, I create a vacancy and it's filled with light. It's a, like a kenosis. I also just really want to acknowledge you 
for the authentic sharing that you do here and also in your book. I do agree that you can't keep things hidden. And I've, I've just, I've just in so, have so much respect for you and others that share the raw truth, you know, not like, oh, I'm going to keep that little, that little secret over there, or that little secret over there. It's, it's, yeah. I think it's a great, example of what's possible for all of us to just kind of open ourselves up. Here I am. Here I am, Lord, you know, <laughs> here I am for all to see yeah. because we are all just human at this core. And we're all actually suffering children, I think, at some level that hasn't resolved most of our childhood issues. Uh, so before we go on to talk about much more, I, I want to go back to how you define forgiveness, because I think this is something that people completely get wrong, and they think it's absolving the other person, it's saying what they did was okay, and we know that that's not true. So could you emphasize again how you look at what forgiveness actually is? Yeah, and if I can just tell you as well that this, this I don't claim to own this knowledge. I didn't know, understand it myself, and I spoke to God. And I said, look, I'm talking to people. I've experienced the metaphysical power of forgiveness, the sanctifying nature of forgiveness, but I don't, can't articulate it. People aren't really understanding what I'm saying. And I said, could you, could you help me to be able to understand it so I can share it? And 99 Reasons to Forgive was the result that came into me, and it's been expanding ever since. So all of it came from God, and I'm going to share what, I, what I've been vouchsafed. Basically, he showed me that it, that one of the one of the tricks of the of the old villain, as they say, the devil, is to let you think that you have the power of forgiveness. I'm going to hold this grudge against this person, and yeah, I'm not going to forgive them. And if I forgive them, I won't forget. And we just keep that. We keep feeding that old villain in us. We keep doing it, and he wants us to feel like that. He wants us to feel like we have that power, but we are not omnipotent. We don't have that power. God has that power. We have the power to repent, to repair our own mistakes. We do not have the power to forgive somebody else. Only contrite remorse can release somebody um, from their errors. And anybody can be forgiven if they can find that place of contrite remorse. So I was able to, I was, I, what I wanted to do was find a, 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 new, uh, a new denotation for forgiveness. Because people think that forgiveness means to let somebody off. So even if you read the most intelligent books, some, some of the books written by great people, they're not talking about whether we have the ability to forgive. They just really talk about whether forgiveness has limitation, whether somebody should be forgiven. Like we, That's our power. That isn't our power. That's something I am absolutely certain of. That's not my power. But I do have the power to recognize a greater power and give it over to him. Now. I wouldn't expect somebody to take my word from that for that. You, you, you're there already. You're a reverend, so you would know that. But I wouldn't expect someone to take my, my word for that. But I would say to them, I live a blessed life because I forgave. And it was a powerful thing to do because I recognized that for me, it wasn't about letting somebody off. It was, a, it was literally about giving it over so it could be dissolved. Uh, my forgiveness to me was like, um, if you imagine that, grudge or anger or fear or dissonance is like a free radical. Basically, it's a, a molecule that isn't complete. Um, and my forgiveness is a divine antioxidant. And what it does is it confronts this free radical and it doesn't kill it. It just goes, oh, yeah, you're not complete. I've got some extra electrolytes, so I'll just pass them over to you. I'll sacrifice them. In, in biology, they call it it's a sacrifice. It sacrifices some of its own energy to, um, to complete the free radical, and it dissolves it. So what we're doing is we, we are – forgiveness is like a medicine that dissolves the anger, the fear, the dissonance that's in us. The problem with the fear and the dissonance that's in us, if we've got a parasite in us, that's con that literally does control our autonomy because it, it affects every decision we make. When it rises and we engage it and we identify with it, we think it's us. You know? um, so if anger rises and we engage with anger and we identify with anger, it incarnates us. And then it takes over our causal body, then it acts in the world, and then we have to pick up the debt, the karmic debt. It's like the honorable um, Dr. Dr. Jekyll always picking up the bill for the dishonorable Mr. Hyde. You know, it's, a, it's, a great, it's a great simile or a great allegory. So what I recognized was that 
um, this isn't really even a war. This is just this is just what the Christ did on the cross. He was a, he was the exemplar of a, an antioxidant, saying we can we can dissolve the free radical of evil, not just dissolve it, but convert it into light, just by absorbing it into ourselves. That's why he's saying don't. Uh, meet uh, anger with anger. Don't try and overcome evil with evil. Overcome evil with good. It wasn't um, socks and sandals. It wasn't like a soft option for a hard problem. It was an actual, absolutely muscular way, a very intelligent way, a very enlightened way of dissolving anger. And, and believe me, when you do it and you get it, because it is difficult, because it's a whole other level of perception, you do see places and streets and cities literally light up with a, with a even a small act of compassion. A small act of compassion can, and when I say light up, you know, you see the place, um, you know, glowing. People are glowing. Everything's glowing. So what we're doing with forgiveness is we're we're recognizing that we have, first of all we recognize I haven't got the power to do that. Um, I've been tricked. I've been told that I've got the power and I'm holding on to this. But what I'm really doing is I'm keeping myself bound to the person that abused me. So someone that abused me 20 years ago, even if I haven't seen him for 20 years, he's still abusing me because he still climbs inside my head or he's in there already. He takes over my autonomy and he acts through me and he speaks through me and he acts as me and he speaks as me in the world. And then we, you know, we end up doing um, unkind things and then afterwards you say, oh, I was out of character, it wasn't me. That's not what I'm normally like. I don't know what came over me. I wasn't myself. Well, you literally wasn't. So what I'm saying is you have to recognize that. Um, if, if, say if me and you had a problem, uh, Carol, and, and there, was, um, you know, there was some anger between us and we're bound together by anger. I think the problem's with you or you think the problem's with me, but actually the problem is a third party. The problem is working through you and it's working through me and it's feeding between the two of us. So when I fight against you or you fight against me, we're just perpetuating the problem. We're making it worse. And there is a third force, the force of evil or the, the devil or the Satan, whatever you want to call him, um, is working through us and feeding from us. And only because we don't understand the process. People don't understand the nature of evil. So they continue to perpetuate evil, thinking, my problem was with this person. Um, and you're thinking, my problem's with that person. The problem is not. The problem is separate. So when I use forgiveness, I'm neutralizing in me, I'm neutralizing in you, and I'm neutralizing this uh, third force that is covertly working through people all the time. You see it all the time. You see such unkindness in the world. But it doesn't help me to be um, judgmental about people who are unkind or even violent because it's not working from them, it's working through them. It doesn't mean they don't have to be corrected, and it doesn't mean there doesn't have to be some kind of judicial inquiry. That still needs to be done because um, this energy is working through somebody. But until we recognize that it's a separate energy, we're never going to get rid of it. So my way of getting rid of it immediately is to find compassion. As yeah. Al Ghazali would say, to find compassion even before I'm offended and to find compassion after I've been offended. And it's, it's a way of me recognizing there's a bit of anger entered me and I am going to, and it's divided me and I'm going to make myself whole. I'm going to sanctify myself by giving that over to a greater force that I absolutely unequivocally know is in everything. It isn't just everywhere. It is everywhere. It isn't just in everything. It is everything. You know, it's not like God is, um, you know, in, in the far corner of the universe waiting you know, to come to our aid. He's pressing against the glass. He's there all the time. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. And the moment we allow him in, he comes in and helps us. But to, to, to allow him in, we've got to make, create a vacuum. We've got to make room. So we've got to give over the stuff uh, that we're holding on to. So forgiveness is about recognizing that I'm entangled to the person who's harmed me and I want to disentangle. The best way, the, what they say with quantum entanglement, is the best way to get out of entanglement is to go deeper into entanglement. In other words, to entangle yourself with God. Well, I want to talk more about entanglement in part two. What I'd like to do now is, is kind of pivot a little bit to go into a couple of your reasons. I'd like for you to talk about freedom yeah. and reciprocity, maybe those two we have time for. Um, 
yeah, that those course, are yeah. those are some of the the reasons and some of the yeah, to 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 actually engage in forgiveness. In the chapter on freedom, you talk about the kingdom of God. When we have control over our own will, we have entered the kingdom. I love that definition of the kingdom of God. And and until we can use our will to live consciously and make wise choices every day, to be self-aware, to to self-observe and be virtuous, we cannot lay claim to the kingdom. So uh, winning back the will is is what freedom is all about. That's what you say in your book on yeah. freedom. I mean, your chapter. Yeah. Well, the will force, people just imagine the will force is, oh, I've got the will to go training or I've got the will to eat healthy. But the will force is actually the, the, the working arm of the soul. So it's an extension of the soul. Um, so when we wake up, you know, like um, we talk about waking up, when we wake up, we normally wake up in this body and we're aware that we, we have this kingdom, but we are not sovereign in it. So we have to enforce the will to win back the territories. So it's a bit like Odysseus coming back from the Trojan Wars to his kingdom at Ithacus, to only to realize that it's been overrun by vagabonds. Even his servants don't recognize him. He's not recognizing his own kingdom. And he has to win his kingdom back. So this is saying that we've been out of our body. We've been out of our atmosphere. We're coming back in. And although we are sovereign in our own body, we're not. We, we, um, we haven't got agency because all of our territories have been taken over by habits, by beliefs, by concepts, precepts, perceptions. And we have to gradually win that back. In Islam, they call this the greater jihad. It's basically the inner war. But it's basically just going into your body and going, well, I recognize that. I haven't got control of my food body. I haven't got you know, the gross physical body. I haven't got control of my breath body. Most people breathe very shallowly. So their body's in a constant state of stress. I haven't got, you know, I haven't got control of my mind or my intellect. You know, I'm just, um, you know, I'm, I'm a hungry ghost. I'm just chasing the, you know, the common foods, but never feeling sated. I haven't got control of my will. So we start by get, by by recognizing that the kingdom, the etymologically word for um, uh, land is will. So when we when you talk about uh, enter the land. You know, claim the land. You know, uh, take take care of the land. It's talking about the will. This is how we enter the kingdom. So when we take over our will, we have our autonomy back. So I can go, okay, I've got my autonomy back. So I can start making conscious decisions, positive causation, um, actions that accord with wisdom and love. You know, to paraphrase Aquinas. Um, and we look at the parts of our life where that isn't present. I think in Catholicism, they would call it apophatic theology. We don't always know what God is because it's so unfathomable, but we know what he's not. We know he's not gossiping outside Costa on a Friday. We know he's not judgment. We know he's not um, jealousy and, and rage. He's not all of those things. So we locate those things in our life. We take ownership of them and we win them back. So if I have a jealousy rising up, I don't engage jealousy. I don't, um, uh, I don't identify with jealousy. So I basically let it rise and I give it nothing. In Buddhism, they would call this choiceless awareness. So I just observe it with, with, the, with the Moses look. I observe it until it dissolves. So it rises, it's angry, it postures, it attacks me with all the passions, but I don't engage it. I recognize that it's um, not me, it's not the true self, and I let it fall. And it might rise and fall a few times, but I don't engage it. So I start to win back my territories like that. I go, okay, I haven't got control of my food. I'm a greedy eater. I'm, I'm not honest in my relationships. I haven't got control of my thoughts. I'm, you know, I'm not congruent. My, my thinking and my saying and my doing are not in alignment. Or well, they're in alignment, but they're not in alignment with wisdom and love. So we start to very, very gradually work on looking at where our territories are lost and win them back again. So eventually we're aiming for a unified body so that my thinking, my saying and my doing are under my conscious control. Once I have the will force back and it's established, I have something to give God. When I have my own will force back, when I have my own soul back, essentially, I can surrender that to the highest force. Someone said to me recently, um, I don't need to work on self-sovereignty because I've given my will over to God. And I said, well, you can't give him what you haven't got. You're being <laughs> defeated every day by junk food. You can't control your own waistline. 
you haven't got autonomy. You can't give him what you haven't got. That's just a folly. That's just, you know, we're kidding ourselves. So we have to win it back. We have to win our own will force back. We have to have a unified body. As long as we don't have our own will, we are entrapped. We're in a cage. We are not free. Yeah. Yeah. So we're in that Plato's can... cave. We're looking yes. at shadows on the wall and we're thinking it's reality. And when somebody comes in and tells us reality's out there where the light is, we attack them. Because yes. we're afraid of looking at the truth. Because the truth means that we've got to make changes and we're not comfortable with that. You know, people like, this is something Aeschylus said, that those who seek knowledge, you know, court suffering. Because it is very scary to see the truth. Mm -hmm. and people very. think they have autonomy and they think they have the will force. Um, and they think they, you know, they, they tend to work externally in the world. They talk about the wealth divide or the pollution of the planet, but they pollute their own body. And there's not, there isn't, there isn't um, an equality of wealth within their own body. They have parts of them that are wise and parts of them that are ignorant. Parts of them that are, have some degree of freedom, but other parts of them that are, you know, completely deprived. There are parts of them that are greedy, parts of them that are starving. So the true esoteric wealth divide that needs to be bridged is within us. You know, the, the depollution needs to be in us. You know, me, me going out and, you know, uh, trying to uh, clean the world isn't going to help if I'm still filling myself with, you know, 10 hours of, uh, 10 hours of neg negative rhetoric from the television news mm -hmm. or bad news. You know, if I'm, if I'm intaking fear and, and kindness and I'm feeding off that all day, it won't make any difference what I try to do with the planet. You know, mm -hmm. I plant a few more trees, it make no difference at all. So the change that we need to make is the change we want to see in the world, to paraphrase Gandhi, is the change we need to make in ourselves. And that's, and that's not just a, a pithy saying, it's very real, it's very muscular. Like I said, people can't stop themselves from gossiping. You know, I remember reading a story about Ginsberg, the poet, and he was very anti the Vietnam War. And he was so angry about it that he took all his friends and poets and bought a farm just outside New York. And he said, we're going to have a little commune. We're going to find a bit of nirvana. Within days, there was fistfights, fistfights over nothing. And he said, I'm trying to stop the war in Vietnam. I can't even stop a war in my own farm. He couldn't even stop a war in his own body because he was a beautiful poet, but very conflicted. So it's, it's fancy to think I can go out there and do something, but it's folly. You know, it's like trying to, it's like going to the cinema and, and uh, trying to fix the film on the screen at the level of the screen. You can't. You have to go back mm -hmm. to the projector. You know, you Completely have you know, agree. the film that's yeah. going through it are our perceptions and beliefs. So, so for me, it's, the idea is that um, I recognize I haven't got my will. That's the first thing. Well, I, I, first time I knew this is when I got my fifth Dan in karate. Fifth Dan is a master grade, I'm a master look in the mirror and I do not see a master. I see a fat, overweight, um, angry, insecure, violent man. Lots of kindness, lots of generosity, but, but deeply insecure and deeply wounded. And it was such a shock to me, Carol, such a shock. So I was given that grade, not because of what I'd achieved, but because of what I was expected to do. I immediately started to work on myself. I knew that if I, if I, you know, if I, if I couldn't stop myself from accessing sexual pornography, if I couldn't stop myself from looking at a curvy girl, if I couldn't stop myself from um, judging somebody or being, being deeply offended at the, at the first sense of insult, if I hadn't got control over all of my faculties, all my territories, I could not call myself a master. So I started to ardently work on it. I'd, I've had lots of signs from God saying, you know, you think you're man of the world, you think you are strong, you think you're you think you're brave, but the first negative uh, post you get on Instagram and you're falling apart with anger or you're upset, you know, what, how much control have you got? I'm looking at the place where we get, we get to the point where we, where we are sat in that isthmus between likes and dislikes. We're not, we're not swayed by likes and dislikes. I don't care about any of them. I just want to serve God. I just want to please God. And, and after Merton, I'm, I'm trusting that my, my wanting to please him pleases him. I only care about pleasing God. That's all I care about. And there are so many areas in my life where I'm at fault with that. That's my work. It's no good me trying to fix things right out there if I'm not, if I'm not diligently working on myself. So 
we wake up, we recognize we have this amazing kingdom with the ability to create causation in the world in a very positive way. Um, if you're centered with the ability to sit in the middle of a city and affect that city for the better just because you're there, because that light is working through you. We have the ability to sit in a, in a, in a, in a place and heal people just because we're there, because that light is coming through us. But to get to that place, we, we need to vacate everything out. We need to, we need to um, think the Christian term is kenosis. So we need to self-empty to make room for this light. And we can only do that if we have had this moment of clarity and we gen gen genuinely want to please God. And then he works with us to gradually decrease us so that he, he gradually contracts us so that we can expand. And he gradually expands us so we can contract. So when we contract the ego, consciousness expands. When we pray, when we meditate, when we serve, that's an act of consciousness, a sacrifice, a sacrament. As we expand consciousness, it automatically contracts the negative, selfish ego. So it's a, it's a process, and it started with me meeting this man, knowing I've got the ability to be physical with him, and knowing, knowing innately that that won't work, and offering him over to God. <clears throat> then God says to me, as a reward for that, I'm going to take care of that. Don't you worry about him. Um, and he's not beyond redemption, no matter what he's done. If he comes to me and he's contrite with remorse, he can be forgiven. But as a reward for that, what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you how you can repent. I gave him something. I said, I'm holding on to this like I own it, like I've got control of this, like I've got the power over whether this man can be forgiven or not. And I know I haven't, so I'm going to give it to you. And in that, at that exchange point, he gave me this gift of seeing. Mm -hmm. So I was able mm -hmm. to see all the areas in me, all of these little pockets of anger and hate and sin that were in me that contained light. He said, yeah, they're so, yours. Yeah, you, I, can, you can convert those. Yeah, I, I, I love all of this. I, I want to go into the law of reciprocity, but I don't want to do that where we are on our time because that's a big okay. thing. So I think what I might want to do is kind of wrap this one up. And in part two, okay. we'll go into the law of reciprocity, karma, because how you explain that in your chapter, I think was just phenomenal. And I think it'd be very, very Thank helpful you, to people to hear as well as talking about entanglement and the opposition. So in, in terms of this part, um, I, I think it'd be good to kind of come to a close. Maybe you could say a couple minutes about compassion and having compassion for our abusers and compassion for the people of the world that are that, that look like those big, bad, evil people. It seems to me like everyone's mm. walking around with some of this stuff. And to just be able to see yeah. who they are Kind of helps dissolve that, but we only have a couple of minutes this time, and and then we'll pick up in, yeah. in uh, part two. Okay. Well, along with Al Ghazali, he said, "I'm afraid not to forgive because I'm afraid that I won't be forgiven." So we set we 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 set the threshold to the level we are able to forgive others. We will be forgiven ourselves. We we hold on to grudges about people like we believe we can forgive them, but we don't look at our own sin. We don't look at our own faults. And we are all committing faults every single day. And even if it um, even if it seems like it's a small fault, it still adds to the um, the fatberg, you know. So what what I do here today, what I think and say and do, is like a is like a pebble dropped in a pool that's going to ripple and affect everything in the world. So you know, if you look at somebody like um, Julian of Norwich, she would say that everybody is responsible for everything because we all contribute. Whether we contribute a little bit or contribute a lot, whether it's a venal sin or a mortal sin, it all separates us from God and it all adds to the karmic debt. So when I, when I talk about forgiveness, I'm talking about freeing myself from this entanglement that we talked about, but I'm also recognizing that I'm not innocent in this. I am not. You know, it's, it's okay for me to call for justice, um, but am I calling for justice for the things I've done wrong? Am I calling for justice for the things my son did wrong or that my wife did wrong? Probably not. Probably we're so busy looking at the things other people do wrong, we're not looking at the things we've done wrong. So one of the common things in psychology is that we project. It's very difficult to look at our own mistakes. It's very difficult to look at the fact that we're often liars, we're often cheats, we're often adulterers. 
you know, I was talking to a friend the other day who'd had an affair and, and he was so remorseful. And he said, I can't talk to my wife. I feel so ashamed. And I said to him, do you watch sexual pornography? And he said, yeah. And I said, do you masturbate on it? And he said, yeah. And I said, so you're still betraying your wife now, every night. He had no idea that he was still betraying her. He didn't know that. He didn't know that the first betrayal is when we think about it. So a lot of it's just trying to understand that we are, all of us are committing some sin every single day. And how do you define sin? Sin mean for me, sins means that I've missed the target. I've 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 okay, acted yeah. in a way that is not is not conducive with wisdom and love. Okay, that's what I wanted to clarify. So it's not yeah. somebody. Uh, it's a trigger word. And saying you're wrong. <laughs> it's just yeah, it's just that I'm working. Um, it means I'm working outside of natural laws. I'm yeah. not I'm not recognizing the natural fixed laws, and I'm working outside of them. So yeah, um, I'm being corrected with them. So it's not a judgment, it's just saying, well, you missed the target there, so let's try again. But you've left an error, so that's got to be cleaned back up again. You just need to look at it and accept it and acknowledge it and give it over to me, and I'll clean it for you. But you need to look at it. You need to recognize how the soul suffers when we sin, when we make mistakes, especially when it's in kind. The soul suffers. It's like torture for the soul. God gave me a vision of this, a, a very frightening vision, and it's stayed in my mind ever since. So if ever, I've, ever I am tempted by the old villain to fall out of alignment, I remember this sign that God showed me and I pull myself straight back to the center. I keep close to his heart. I ask him to keep me ever within his sight. <laughs> so I, I would say to people, um, examine your own life. You know, and, and if you feel as though you haven't committed a sin, um, that's okay. You know, as they say, cast the first stone. But if you have, um, then don't worry too much about what everybody else is doing wrong. Seek right, justice right. and reconciliation with yourself first. And in reading your book, I have to say, some stuff in my life came up <laughs> so <laughs> that, I, that I hadn't thought about. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I forgot about that. So it was very helpful. Yeah. Well, Jeff, let's, let's wrap this one up. I'm so glad that you're, we're having this conversation. There's so much more to talk about. Um, so thank you. We'll take kind of a quick break and come back and we'll talk about reciprocity and um, opposition and entanglement and anything else that we have left to talk about so that you can meet okay. your back in time. Sound good? Lovely. All right. Thank you, Jeff. And thank you, listeners. And I now close the Spiritual Forum. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, you can let me know by leaving a positive rating and review on your favorite podcast app or make a tax-deductible donation at thespiritualforum.org. The Spiritual Forum is a podcast, prayer, and retreat ministry affiliated with Unity Worldwide Ministries. Thank you again for being a part of the Spiritual Forum community. And remember, you are an amazing, divine, and powerful being. Mm -hmm.